This is a Coastal Community Church podcast. For more information about Coastal Community Church, please visit coastalcommunity.tv. My name is TJ, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm pumped for the second week of our Empty Promises series because I believe that God is going to do something incredible in some people's lives today. Turn to your neighbor and say, God, oh, no, really, turn to your neighbor, good, I, I know, it's a, wake up, wake up, back here, back here, say, God, God is about, about to rock your world. That's what I'm talking about right there. God is about to show up and rock your world. Hey, you know, and so it's going to be awesome today. You know, we, we've been diving into this series, and, and we talked about last week the, the fact that in, in Christianity, there's, there's this myth that, that is kind of out there about this idea that, that God is all about us just kind of doing some sin management things in our lives, and, and the fact that when we accept Christ into our lives, and, and we're looking for purpose, and we're li- looking for meaning, that all God wants to do is kind of come in the living room of our life and just kind of tidy up a little bit, maybe do a little bit of dusting here and there, maybe move our furniture around a little bit. You know, that's, that's okay, God, you can do that. But there are some rooms in our life, there are some areas of our life that, man, we don't want God to mess with at all. I mean, all of us have that room or that drawer or that closet that we just kind of call our, drunk dr- our junk drawer or that junk room. We have an entire room in our house. In fact, I was going to put a picture up, but then I I was like, that would probably embarrass my wife because, you know, women really like their house. You know, we always have to clean our house really, really good. If anybody else like this, when you have people coming over, what do you do? You clean every area that everybody can see, right? But there's that room in that place where you just, you're tossing like entire couches in there. You're tossing, like we have a dining room table in there with a bedroom set and a desk and a, a set of golf clubs right in the middle of it, you know, and, and we got all these, we got extra pictures that we don't know where to hang, they're laying in there, you know, we just, anything that we don't know what to do with, we have, in fact, I found some clothes in there today, I was like, I was wondering where this was, you know, we just throw it in there, we just try to get rid of it, because we don't want anybody to mess with that stuff, you know, that's our hidden room, and so many times we have areas of our lives that are just like that, there are these hidden areas that we're like, Jesus, man, you can have all this, but this room back here, you ain't having none of that. That's my junk room. And because uh, we all got some junk, not in our trunk, but in our life somewhere. We've got some areas of our lives that, that we're not ready to let God take over yet. And, and what the Bible would call those things are, is idols. And now some of you guys are like, I don't have idols in your life. But this is the thing. If we have anything in our lives that takes the place of God, that, that is in competition for God's spot in our lives, that wants to be in that number one spot, that's what an idol is. It's something that, that is becoming the ultimate in our lives, that, that it's kind of the untouchable area, that this is just mine and it's mine. And I'm going to keep it and I'm going to make sure that, that nothing has it. And it's not, the, the idea here isn't to prove that you have idols because you can look around all over the world and you can see that our heart is an idol factory. I mean, it will just come up with one thing after another, after another, after another, and we'll replace one idol with another idol. And so the fact isn't, do we have idols in our lives? The, the question that we should all be trying to answer is, is what is the thing that's competing for God's spot, for that number one spot in my life? 
And so today we're going we're gonna to dive in and we're going to turn in our Bibles to Genesis 29. If you have your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in your worship guide and we have some verses in there for you. Or you can take a look at the screen. Also in your worship guide on the top right hand corner of the, the notes that are in there, there's a QR code. You can use your QR code reader and you can be cool and technologically advanced and you can go and follow along online. You can do all that junk. For those of you guys that, are, that don't know how to do any of that, just look up at the screen. Everything will be up there. And so... Uh, <laughs> try to make it easy for everyone. Um, and so we're going to be hanging out there. And, and before we dive into that, let me just kind of give you a back story of kind of what's happening here. In this, this is a story of Jacob's life. Now, Jacob was a son uh, of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, Isaac and Rebekah, they had two sons. They were born at the same time. And, uh, and the son Esau came out first. And uh, they said when he was coming out, there was a hand that was gripped to his ankle that was holding on, that was trying to pull him back. And that was that was Jacob, that as he was coming out, he was holding on, and it says, when he was born, a prophet said to them that the, the younger will rule over the older one. And, and so there was this constant tension in a family. If any of you guys have some siblings, you know that there's some constant tension between you and your siblings, don't you? you if there's an older brother and a younger brother, man, they're constantly going for the attention and admiration and affection of their parents. They're always wanting to have that aspect in their life. And, and, and Jacob and Esau were no different. They were constantly battling for their parents' attention. But the reality was, is in their family, Esau kind of uh, identified with his dad. He was kind of like a manly man. He was out there hunting and, and killing and doing, you know, the kind of the Tim Allen tool man stuff. He would do the grunt kind of stuff. You know, he'd had a, that kind of identity going on with him. And then you had Jacob who was hanging out with his mom. What we would call today, he was kind of a mama's boy. And so we kind of had the, the athlete kind of guy over here and then we had the metro guy over on this side he was more concerned with watching like instead he was watching espn he's over here like watching the cooking channel or something you know and so you know we had these two totally different identities and 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 Esau was loved by his father Isaac, and, but Jacob really identified with his mother Rebecca, and, and so they kind of lived in these separate aspects, and one day um, there was always tension between them, and one day Esau came in after being outside hunting. I don't really know what he was doing. He, he could have been running sprints for all I know. I, he came inside, and he's basically like, man, I am famished. Uh, man, give me some soup, because he knew that the mama's boy would be cooking something. You know, he probably was watching Food Network, and he's like, oh, I should whisk that up or something. I don't know, and so, uh, and so he comes in, and he says, man, give me something to eat. And he's like, no, man, I'm not giving you something to eat. And he's like, give me something to eat. And he says, to, Jacob says to his brother, listen, if you sell me your birthright as being the firstborn, that means that I get all of the inheritance. You can have some food. I'll give you some food. And Esau being kind of not the smartest guy, I mean, he was a jock. And so uh, he, he, hey, I'm a jock, so I can say that, you know. Um, he goes ahead and he says, man, I'll take that deal. And so he sells his birthright basically for a bowl of stew. And, uh, and so there's this, there's this tension going on in, in, in between the relationship because Esau is kind of mad that Jacob just kind of swindled him. He was kind of a swindler and a liar and a manipulator. And, and so knowing that his father is never going to give him that birthright, he decides with his mom that, man, we're going to trick his dad. His dad had some, had some failing eyesight, and so he dressed up like his brother. I guess his brother was really hairy. Do you guys remember old school wrestling? Anybody an old school wrestling fan? Anybody remember George the Animal Steel? He was like a just like a 
like the hairiest man alive. I mean, if there was like hair somewhere on your body, he had it there. And so they say Esau was the same way. He had this crazy hair. And so basically they put like a Berber rug on Jacob and he went in there and his dad felt him and he said, man, you don't sound like him, but you feel like him. And, and, and he gave him the blessing of the birthright. And when Esau heard this, he was irate. He was, he, in fact, he came home and he said, man, I'm going to kill my brother. And, and so the thing that Jacob does is he flees. And I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible like this, I don't need reality TV, man, because this is like reality TV at its best. Where else can you get brothers stealing from each other, stealing their future inheritance, having all kinds of craziness going on? That started in the Bible. That did not start on ABC, NBC, MTV. That started right there in the Bible. And so if you read your Bible, you find all this crazy stuff out. There was, there's controversy in there. And so he takes off and he is running because his, his brother is like, I'm going to kill this fool and uh and so he, he's on this this life he doesn't know where he's going i mean basically his life is in ruins at this point i mean he is uh he's not allowed to go home he'll never probably see his family again um you know he's in essence lost his inheritance because there's no way his his brother's going to allow him to come back and take hold of that inheritance and so he is he's running to the one place that he knows he can go and that's his mother's side of the family and that's his uncle Laban who is his mother's sister and so he runs to her and that's where we pick up the story here in Genesis 29 verse 16 through 20 and it says now Laban had two daughters the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And it says, Leah had weak eyes. And that's kind of an interesting fa phrase right there because basically it means that she had been touched by the ugly stick. Now, uh, <laughs> don't be emailing me. I didn't say that. That's, that's the Bible there. You got a problem with that, you can talk to God about it. And so, and then it, uh, that's his story. Anyways. It says, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. And basically in the Hebrew, that means that she was hot stuff, okay? And so uh, it says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days for him to him because of his love for her. Now, this is that part where you go, oh, you know, I mean, that's sweet right there. I mean, this guy, this guy worked seven years because he was so madly in love. Come on now, come on. Give me a good, good oh, there, there we go, there we go. I mean, if, if we were to turn this into a love story today, I mean, this would be an incredible romantic, dramatic movie, probably with some vampires or something in it. You know, I don't know where... But if you start thinking about this, this is not romantic. This is sick. <laughs> I mean, I mean, scholars point out in, in everywhere that this price for a wife was in, unheard of in those days. I mean, working seven years, that was like four times the going rate to have a bride. I mean, this was an unbelievable price that he was paying. In verse 21, it says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is complete. I want to lie with her. And uh, now for all of you single guys out there, I just, just kind of a side note right now. Um, when you go to ask that potential woman's father for her hand in marriage, don't tell him that you just want to marry her so you can have sex with her. That's just not a good plan here that he takes. Um, just a side note. But you look at this story and you start looking at it and you see a man that is overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for one woman. And why does he have that? Because his life is so empty. His life is just empty. And it doesn't take somebody with 
an amazing psychology background to realize this. You can start to look at his life and you can re- recognize that, man, here's a guy who never had his father's love and, and all of a sudden he's separated from his mom who he had a close relationship with and in his entire family he's, is, is in ruins and he thinks to himself, you know, the only way that I'm gonna be able to fulfill this longing and this desire for community, for family in my life is if I have her is if she can come in and fulfill the need that is within my life. And he, and, he, and he looks around at all of his circumstances and he looks around and he just feels abandoned because he has nothing at this moment. And he's thinking, if I just had her love, if I just had her acceptance, if I just had that in my life, it would fix everything. And Tim Keller says this, he says, all the longings of his heart for meaning and affirmation were fixed on Rachel. He thought the love and acceptance of one person, of this one person that he could get into a relationship with, would fix all the longings of his heart that only one thing and one thing alone could fulfill, and that is a love that comes from a heavenly father. Now Laban knows that that Jacob's kind of jacked up, messed up. You know, he's had, a, he's had a horrible family life like probably some of you have. And so you're saying, man, my life isn't much different than this. And, and so Laban, he, he's a little bit of a manipulator as well. He says, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, not the one that Jacob's in love with, but, but the ugly stick one. And, um, and he gave her to Jacob and Jacob laid with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. Now when morning came, there was Leah. And I love the Bible here because there is an exclamation point right there at the end of that saying like, it's like, surprise, you know, like he didn't have any clue. And and this is another thing for all you single people. Um, You know, when you go to the club and you get all crazy and stuff, you don't know what you're gonna be waking up next to the next day. So it just, it's, a good, it's a good thing to know not, what not to do. He's giving you some, some pointers right here. Don't go doing all that stuff. So uh, yeah, anyway, so Jacob said to Laban, I am all over the place this morning. I, I'm sorry, I drank like a whole cup of po- uh, pot of coffee this morning, so I'm a little jacked up. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Shayla. Not really, it's, it's not bad for you guys. It's gonna be bad for her later. So, I don't, so Jacob said to Laban, what is it that you have done me? I have served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Jacob's like, what's up with this, bro? And Laban's like, oh man, you didn't know that our custom here is that, you know, we can't give you the younger one without getting rid of the older one first. So you have to take the older one to be your wife first. But listen, I'll cut you a deal. And if you work another seven years, I'll give you the younger one. And, uh, and so he says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And, and, and a commentator says this about this passage. He says, this story is a miniature of our disillusionment. For no matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, It's always Leah, never Rachel. Isn't that so true in our lives that the things that we put our hopes in that we think, man, if I can just have that, if I can just get this person in my life, if I can just accomplish this thing, then everything will work out in my life. If I can just have that job, if I can just get that house, if I can just end up in that school, if I can just have that person as my boyfriend, if I can just get in a relationship with that girl, man, if I just have these kids, then everything will fix itself. You know what? My relationship with my spouse, you know what's going to fix this? If we just have kids, it'll change everything. And all those with kids are like, you're right, it'll make it worse. And, and so, <laughs> sorry, I, child dedication. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm having a rough day. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
Jacob would eventually get Rachel, but his unhealthy dependence on her caused so much pain and so much shame and so much guilt and so much heartache, not just for that generation, but for generations to come. Then just last for that moment, but it trickled down into their kids' lives and their kids' kids' lives, and it just continued on. And today, I believe that we're talking about one of the most deadly idols that we can have in our lives. And, and, and it's, it's probably the one that we're, we're somewhat aware of, but yet is ignored. And it's this idol of acceptance and approval. It's this thing that, that when we, we look to other people to give us in life what only God can fulfill within us. And I think the majority of the population, while we know that this thing is there, uh, we don't really recognize it in our lives. We allow it to kind of lie dormant, and, and we don't necessarily see it playing out. But, you know, some of us will start to, to recognize it because we're, we're unaware to it because it's so subtle. And it so just kind of creeps up on you that you don't even realize that this idol is ruling and reigning in your life. And, and I was thinking about this, and, and I was thinking about it. if this is you, then you're absolutely paralyzed by the fear of rejection in your life. And in fact, if you're on the extreme side of this, you're, you're so paralyzed that, and your self-esteem is so fragile that if just the tiniest bit of criticism just rocks your world, I mean, it will shake you for days upon days upon days and you don't know how to recover for it. And, and just like the drug addict needs his fix or, or the, the alcoholic needs the buzz or the success addict needs to climb one more rung on the ladder of success, the, the approval addict needs people to like him even when he doesn't like himself. And so what we're going to do, just like we've done in the last couple of weeks, is look at a couple areas to help us identify, man, is this something that is going on inside of our lives? Is this something that we're dealing with? And so I just want us to look at a couple of things. So, you know, we put the scale of one, two, th- through five on your notes. The first one is this, is I am constantly worrying about what others might be thinking of me. If you're, if, if this is you, you would mark a five on there, you know, that you're constantly, like I was walking, we were walking down uh, Atlantic Boulevard in Delray Beach last night doing some staff photos, and we were walking around. We were kind of all dressed up. And I noticed that everybody was kind of staring at us a little bit as we were walking down. And all of a sudden, I got super self-conscious. I was like, why are they looking at me? Do I have something on my butt? You know, I'm, just, you know, I'm going through all these things. Do I look fat? You know, is, is, you know, I'm going through all those things in my life because I don't recognize this. But as I start looking at my life, I start realizing, man, I current, constantly am worrying about what others think about me. So if that's you, mark a five. If it's not you, go more towards the one. The second thing is I do not do certain things because other people may not approve. If you find yourself, you know, there may be some times when you feel called to do some things, but, but you, start, you, you start thinking about, man, those, those people won't like if I do that. And so instead of stepping out and doing those things, you, you kind of shrink back and decide, man, I'm just gonna go with the flow in life. Another one is I continually recite criticism in my head. Because you have this unhealthy idea of criticism, it is something that paralyzes your life and it's just this continual repetition that's going over and over and over and over again. So somebody says something about you and you cannot let go of it. I mean, it is playing out in your life big time. Another one is I get anxious when I think someone might be upset with me. And and this is a a big one because I noticed this in my life. You know, when somebody's upset at me, the reason I recognize this one in my life is because I have trouble sleeping at night. It's the only time I can't sleep is when somebody else is mad at me. And and I struggle getting to bed because I'm replaying the conversation. How could I have said that differently? How could I have done this? And how could I have done that? Because somebody is upset with me. If If that's you, mark a five. I stop myself from speaking up when I think someone won't agree with me. This is a big one. 
We, we shy back because of what somebody else might have a disagreement on. Another one is I find myself consistently disappointed in other people because they don't meet my expectations. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a big one. I, I'm, if you're engaged um, with people and you're putting your deepest needs and expectations on them, let me just tell you something. They will always crumble under those expectations. I, I see this all the time in people that are getting married and engaged and maybe are already married, that they have all these needs and all these desires and, and they're putting all these things on the person that they've married or they're gonna marry saying, man, if they can just do all these things and the expectations are so huge, it doesn't matter if that person fulfills every single one of them, it's gonna crush the relationship. And maybe you find yourself in a relationship like that and you realize, man, I'm putting all this on them because I need their love and affection and approval. Another one might be, I can't say no to people even if it costs the people who deeply care about me. And this might be one of the greatest ironies of approval addicts is that they constantly, when people ask them to do things, they constantly say yes to the less important things and say no to the most important things in their life. And so they'll have a tendency to say yes to working more and saying no to going to their kid's ball game because they want the approval there at work. And so they'll destroy the ones that are closest to them because they think, oh man, I gotta, I gotta get the approval of everybody else. And so if we allow approval to run our lives, a couple of things are going to happen. And I really want us to dive into this because I believe that a lot of people out there today are approval addicts. And if you're an approval addict, man, you are destined for mediocrity in life. You're destined for mediocrity. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now this, this scripture is, is super important because I believe that God, that, that being a Christ follower, that God is going to come into your life and he's going to ask you to take some risks in life. Anybody has God asked them to take some risks in life, to so do some things that maybe are outside of their comfort zone, you know, maybe going and having that tough conversation with somebody, maybe going and sharing your faith with somebody else, maybe stepping out and, and applying for a new job that you're like, I don't know how I would get that job or, or maybe asking somebody out on a date like, oh man, you know, I'm not that great looking, but they are and so I'm going to step out and, you know, and, and, and there's some times in life that, that you want to take those risks. And, and that's what it's talking about here, to make your body as a living sacrifice. You know, there's some times where we got to die to what we feel on the inside and take some steps of faith in life. But the problem is, is the approval addict has a tendency to roll with the herd. They have this herd mentality. Wherever the herd of people is going, they have a tendency to go there. And so what happens to us and what happens to people is, is they'll feel like God is calling them to do something and they'll start to step out of the herd and start to go a different direction but what happens is the herd starts criticizing them and starts talking about them and all of a sudden because they're doing all that they have a tendency to fall back just into place and just go along with everybody else and then miss out on the opportunity to step out and do something great because they're constantly living a life of mediocrity just going with everybody else instead of living the life that God intended for them to live with purpose and with destiny because they can't allow the criticism to shake from them so they can step out into what God has for them. And the approval addict is destined for a life of mediocrity because they always have to follow the herd. And I know this to be so true in my life. I remember when I came to Christ at, at the age of 19 and, and I, was, I just had this radical conversion to Jesus. I was doing all this stuff and, and I felt like Jesus just spoke to me literally. And I was like, I went home and I called up my girlfriend and I, I broke up with her and I said, you know what? I'm, God told me to break up with you. Now that is not I know that that's a cop-out for a lot of guys. Don't use that cop-out. I mean, unless God literally spoke to you, you know, don't just, I don't want to date her anymore. God told me, you know, don't do that. That's jacked up. And so 
I really felt like God told me, and so I called her up. You know, she didn't believe in Jesus. She didn't even know who Jesus was or anything. And, and so I told her that, and I told my friends that I was partying with. I used to throw parties at my house all the time. Hey, no more parties at my house. And, uh, and so all my friends, they, they heard that I broke up with my girlfriend, and they're like, uh, he's now gay. You know, and so uh, that was, that was that's, that's what they started saying. They're like, Man, TJ's got off the deep end of the stick, man. He's like, he's like, we don't even know where he's at right now. And so they started saying all this stuff, and, and, and I felt like God was calling me to, to move to Texas to be a part of this internship, and I didn't even know what that was all about. And I remember walking into one of my friend's houses one day. We just kind of had this relationship where you just, you just walk right into their houses. You know, you have those friends that are like that. And there was a group of them in his room, and, and I, I walked up to the door, and the door was shut, and I heard my name. Now, when you hear your name, it's, it's all right to listen, right? Uh, that's, that's what I, you know, because they're they're talking about you. That's what, uh, that's what I was told. So, uh, so I just kind of crept up to the door and I heard them talking and saying all this stuff about me and saying, man, TJ's lost it. And you know what? He's going crazy. He's talking about all this Jesus stuff. I don't even, who is Jesus? You know, I think he's gay now. Does somebody want to talk to him about being gay? And, and, you know, maybe we, we'll throw a naked girl in his, I mean, they were just talking about all this craziness. And I remember walking out of the house and going home and sitting down and just kind of sitting there and going, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should just call that girl up and have her come over and I'll prove them all wrong. And, and it was in that moment that I just heard God speak to me and he, he just said, you know what? You can have the opportunity to follow them or you can follow me here today. And I believe that God is saying to a lot of you guys here today, you can have the opportunity to follow the herd or you can follow me to here today. And I'll tell you what, that decision to say, you know what, I'm going to follow you, God, and move to Texas was one of the greatest decisions of my life. It, it catapulted my life into some of the most amazing experiences that I've ever had that I would have never had had I gone back to my lifestyle. And I know that it, it seems painful to step outside of the comfort zone of, of the safety of the group, you know, because the group is, that's, that's the safe place. That's the easy place to go along in life. But I believe that God calls us outside of that a lot of times. And here's the thing, it's going to be painful, but the goal here is not to become immune to hurt. I mean, that's the reality of why we go back to the hurt, because we don't want to be hurt. The goal of this is, is, is not to become uh, immune to hurt, because when we become immune to hurt, we, we don't feel for people anymore. The goal of this is to have courage in the face of criticism. The goal of this is to be able to step outside of what everybody else is saying and not living for their approval, but living for the approval of one. And, then, and, and living as an approval addict is a hard, hard way to live because you're constantly making sure that you're doing the right thing. You're constantly making sure that you're saying the right thing. You're constantly making sure that you look a certain way. You're constantly making sure that you're acting a certain way. And if you continue to live that way, those feelings that you're gonna have is gonna be constantly shifted based on what other people think of you. So at times when that person person is giving you approval, you're going to be on the roller coaster and you're going to be way up high. But all of a sudden, when that approval is pulled from you and all of a sudden they start to criticize you or they get angry at you, all of a sudden that approval is gone. And all of a sudden you're in the dumps because everything of your value and your worth was found in what they thought of you. And let me just tell you something here today. Choosing to be real over being light will not be the safest thing you do today. But let me just tell you something. It will be the most rewarding thing you've ever done. It's one of the reasons we're passionate about connect groups here. 
we're passionate about. Let's, let's get rid of the facade that we have in life and, and trying to go with the herd and let's sit down and do life with some people. And let's be real. Listen, we don't have to have it all together. You know what? We're a bunch of broken people here that God is doing something amazing in. And to think that you can come in here and just put on the mask and people don't think that you're broken, you're fooling only one person and that's yourself. It's time for us to break away from the facade and, and stop living a mediocre life and step into the destiny that God has for us. Approval addicts also are destined for exhaustion. You know, constantly trying to control your image um, so that you get the good opinion of other people will not only exhaust you, it'll keep you from getting into a right relationship with the one that you should be in relationship with. You're constantly out there trying to do those things, trying to make it with them when God only wants one thing from you and that's a relationship with you and for you and him to be number one. And you know what? In the Christian world, there's some Christian ease talk and, and that's Christian talk for, if you don't know what Christian ease is, it's our own little language that we speak that nobody that outside of the church really understands. But there's a word that is so popular today that I absolutely hate and it's this word authentic. I've never heard a, a more overused in an underlived word in my life. You know, it, it's one of those things that it's the cry of all but the game of few in life. And in authenticity, this is what it means. It means the practice of letting go of who we think we should be in order to embrace who we actually are. It's the practice of letting go of who we think we should be in order to embrace who we actually are. And the very few people live this way. Do you want to know why very few people live this way? It's because they don't have what it takes to step out and have courage. Because it takes tremendous courage to step out of our comfort zones and not be what everybody expects us to be, but to be who God has called us to be. And today there's some of us that, man, we need to embrace this. We need to let go of who we think we're supposed to be and embrace who God created us to be because that is probably the most courageous battle, the courageous battle that we can identify with and we can go into today for our lives because it takes courage to be authentic, because it takes courage to admit that we're not, take, we're not perfect at all. It takes courage to admit that we don't have it all going together, all going on and got it all going together and we've got our life perfect. It takes courage to say to somebody, I love you first. It takes courage to step out and create art. It takes courage to go out there and, and put yourself out on the line for somebody else. It takes courage to live outside of yourself and live for others. It takes courage to get beyond the boundaries that you've set up and other people have set up around you and step into the destiny and purpose that God has for you. It takes courage. But most of us are, are so beat up because the greatest irony in this whole deal is that we are posing and we are faking and we are acting like, man, we got it all together. And we think that, man, if we continue to do that, then people will like us, people will accept us, and we're just lying to ourselves. Because we think the approval of others will take us where, where we need to go. But what is going on in the inside is our heart is so desperately desiring something different. And the reason why our heart is longing not for the approval of others is because you can only be loved to the extent that you are known. 
Do you guys get that? You can only be loved to the extent that you are known. And see, what happens in our lives is we, we're out there and we're searching for the approval of other people. And so we're longing for that approval and, and we're going after it and we're longing for it and we're hoping for it. And so when somebody starts to approve us, maybe they tell us they love us or, or they accept us, all of a sudden what happens in the inside, we get excited, but then we realize that there are some hidden areas of our lives that they don't know about. And, we, and, and, and while they may say that they love us, while they may say that they accept us, while they may, uh, it seems like they approve of us, deep down in our heart, our heart tells us that we can't accept that because if they knew who we truly are, there's no way that they would accept us. And so while that approval is great because it's not really me, because I know the real me and the real me is hidden down there behind all this facade that I've put on, there's no way that they would accept me. And the reason I won't get real is because I haven't realized the benefits of confession because I'm still living with the idea that the benefits of concealment are so much better but the benefits of concealment, of keeping myself behind the walls of life, behind the ideas of what everybody else has for me because I haven't realized how devastating those things are. And my life is being shot up into ruins because I haven't gotten real with people. Because I haven't been real with myself. Colossians 3, 1, and 4, 1 through 4 says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. He's saying, man, don't set your hearts on things down here. Don't set your heart on those things. He said, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The bottom line here is, is your approval is not my life. The approval uh, of others doesn't define my worth and value. What I do up here and, and what you think of that does not define my life. You know what defines my life? Christ defines my life. And see, we can run around and we can try to get the approval of everybody, which is exhausting. Or we can live our life for the approval of one, which is so much more doable. So much more doable. So the approval addicts, man, they're destined for mediocrity. They're destined for exhaustion. And they're destined for guilt and rejection. You know, where does all this come from? I don't, I don't want to get super psychological on you guys, but, you know, it, 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 this approval addiction is rooted in this self-abandonment idea. See, we were designed by God to have this longing, this, this desire to be approved and accepted and, and valued and, and have worth. God put that within us. It was something he designed in us. That we were to have this longing that could only be fulfilled by him. But what we've done is we've put that desire up for adoption. We've put it out there so that other people can grab hold of it. And we, can, we allow them to take the place of God in our lives. And we allow them to, to all of a sudden take that place. And what happens to us is, is that, man, we're making everybody else responsible for our feelings. And that's how God never designed it. God wants us to find our worth and our value and, our, uh, and, and, and everything we need. In him. Now, I know some of you guys are like, TJ, you're, you're freaking crazy because I can't, you know, how can, I, how can I get my value and my worth from God when I can't even get my value and my worth from my cousin Bobby or that, that neighbor that's next to me that I know really well? How can that happen? 
It's because we haven't realized where the source of that comes from because we're constantly going through life and we're replaying the message that the world has told us that I'm not enough. Man, I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not, I'm not charismatic enough. I'm not talented enough. And we, it doesn't matter what that is. We all have a blank there that we're telling ourselves constantly that this is not enough in my life. And do you know what underlies all of that? why we don't think we're enough? It's because there's shame. There's shame in our life. There's a brilliant lady by the name of Breen Brown um, who's done decades of research and focus groups and gone through stories all regarding shame. And she discovered this. She says, there's only one variable that separated those who had a healthy sense of love and belonging versus those who didn't. She said, the ones that connected with others in a healthy way believed they are worthy of love and belonging. She said the key to them is they, they believed they're worthy. And I believe the biggest obstacle to connection is the feeling that you're not worthy of that connection. I know that some of you guys, you live with so much shame from circumstances you've been in in your life, things that have happened to you, Maybe you were raped. Maybe there was some abuse in your life. Maybe you had a drug addiction in the past. Maybe you came from a broken home. Maybe you, maybe you were, you've been divorced or divorced again. Maybe you're a single parent out there and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm only half of a family. Maybe you got you're addicted to pornography today. And you got the shame in your life. And you think there's no way that I could believe that there's a God that's out there that loves me. You just don't even, you can't even comprehend that, you know, because maybe your dad didn't love you or maybe your mom didn't love you or maybe that girlfriend that broke up with you, she didn't give you the love that you so desire. And you think, how could an invisible God Love me. How could he? And in this ironic twist, you think there's no way that this one God could fulfill the need that I've been longing for all my life. The interesting thing is, is man, I, I, I walk in here every week and I'm, I'm amazed at how strong the temptation is from even my own life to try to hide my sin from God. You know, it's one thing to hide my sin from y'all because I, I can do that pretty good. I can pretty, put on a good show and I can act like I got it all together and when I'm not having it together, I do a Beyonce dance and you guys laugh and, and everything's good. but I just find it amazing that we try to hide this, this area of our life that, that God's already done so much for. And I love this verse in Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just leave that verse up there, please. So many times we act shocked when we commit sin, we think, oh man, God doesn't have any idea about this. Let me just tell you something. 
God was already clued in at how jacked up and messed up you were and are still. And we think there's, there's just no way that God could accept me. I mean, I, I know what, what's in my heart. I know what's in my life. I know all these things. There's no way that God could accept me. And it says that while we were still sinners, you know what that means? That while Christ was on the cross, he was looking not only in that moment, not only in the past, but he's looking to the future, to your life, to the future of your life. And he's saying, you know what? It doesn't matter how screwed up they are. I'm gonna die for them anyways. And some of you guys need to get that today because you think, man, I've messed up too much. I've messed up too big. And there's no way that my Lord could accept me because of what I've done. And and Jesus died while we were still sinners, while we were jacked up, even while we're gonna continue to do stuff that's messed up. Not that he wants us to do those things, but he says, you know what? I accept you. I approve of you. I love you unconditionally. There's nothing you can do to earn my love. That is something that's free. That's called grace. And you can search for the approval in others, but they're never going to be able to fulfill. You can search for it in that relationship, but it's never going to fulfill. You can search for it in that job, but it's never going to fulfill. The only place that's going to fill that God-shaped void in your life is Jesus Christ. And some of you today, man, you've been living in the shame game. And the single most important practice you can engage in when trying to quit looking to the approvals of others is simply reflecting the love that our Heavenly Father has for you. Because you are worthy of love and belonging. Now I realize that, you know, this probably would have been a much better conversation for you at like say age eight so you didn't have to deal with all this stuff. Like it would have helped us out a lot at that point. You know what the second best time it is for you to deal with that and get the help you need? It's today. And let me just tell you something. God is here. He's been pulling. He's been tugging at your hearts. said this isn't about religion this is about a relationship the only relationship they can fill is a relationship with Jesus let's pray this is a coastal community church podcast for more information about coastal community church please visit coastalcommunity.tv